Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on it. And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. We'll bring you the facts and some timely commentary from policymakers, experts, and grassroots leaders from across the country. This week, we'll talk with Richard Jackson. He's the president and founder of the Global Aging Institute and the author of a new paper called why the national debt still matters. Uh, the paper is part of a uh, series of issue briefs that the uh, Global Aging Institute and the Concord Coalition have collaborated on. The series is called The Shape of Things to Come. This particular paper explains why it's wishful thinking to believe that, uh, that the country can, can, can continue to run up the national debt without placing its future at risk. And it also looks at why current budget projections may uh, greatly understate the future debt burden and, uh, and, and with it, the dangers of uh, failing to change course uh, in a timely way. So uh, Richard Jackson is an internationally recognized authority on global aging. Prior to, uh, to, to, to launching the Global Aging Institute, he directed a research program on global aging at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Uh, he's, he's the author or co-author of numerous studies on uh, the global aging challenges. And, uh, and uh, for several years in the mid 90s to the early 2000s, uh, Richard co-authored a series for the Concord Coalition called uh, Facing Facts Quarterly. So he's an old friend. Uh, he regularly, I don't mean he's old, I mean he is, he has been a friend of the Concord Coalition for a long time. Uh, he regularly speaks on uh, aging related issues. Uh, he's widely quoted in the media and he holds a PhD in history from Yale University. Uh, also joining the conversation today is Concord Coalition Chief Economist, Steve Robinson, who contributed a debt model used in this paper. And we'll, we'll get to that uh, when we dive into the details of the paper. Richard and Steve, welcome to Facing the Future. It's great to be here, Bob. Yeah, good morning, thanks. Uh, well, Richard, I think that uh, you and I have been discussing the aging of America for so long that uh, during that process would become part of the phenomenon itself. Uh, but, but let's skip over that and get right to your paper. Um, I guess it says something about the fiscal state we're in right now that we even need to do a paper uh, on why deficits still matter, but, uh, but there we are. Um, earlier uh, this month, the Congressional Budget Office updated their projections and they're projecting a deficit for uh, this year of $3 trillion. Uh, it's the, the, the highest, well, that's over 13% of the economy. Um, and it's uh, the second highest since the end of World War II, exceeded only by last year's deficit. Um, but, but really, the, the, the problem uh, is, is more long-term because a lot of the short-term deficit is a result of 
pandemic spending. But we had a we had a an unsustainable, a large and growing, and ultimately unsustainable budget situation before the pandemic hit. And you know, if you look out, the, the debt held by the public is is now around 100% of GDP, approaching a, a record. And uh, but if you look out 30 years, uh, CBO is projecting that under current law you'd have a a debt that's 200% uh, of GDP. Uh, so the more re and re more remarkable yet is that despite all of that, politicians and even some mainstream economic uh, economists seem remarkably unconcerned uh, by all of that. Uh, and so I wonder if you just in setting up the paper, why it... Uh, it, it is that we wanted to have a, a address this question of why deficits still uh, matter and, and you know, what's, what's behind this phenomenon. Yeah, well, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right, Bob. We, we have these fairly startling debt projections, um, um, unprecedented uh, in peacetime, the only historical parallel being uh, World War II. And yet, uh, what's even more startling um, is that so many economists don't seem terribly concerned. I mean, there are, of course, you know, first and foremost, the adherence, adherence uh, uh, of what's called modern monetary theory or MMT, um, who say that the government can always borrow uh, as much money as it wants to, because it can always print uh, as much money as it wants to to finance the debt. Um, and we can talk a little bit about MMT uh, uh, later and why mainstream economists, uh, uh, whatever their political or ideological persuasion, don't buy in uh, uh, to that premise. Um, yet, at the same time, uh, there are a number of prominent mainstream economists who are arguing that the federal government can safely uh, run much larger deficits uh, uh, than it could previously. Um, um, you know, the reason uh, is today's uh, low interest rate environment. Um, and uh, not only can we run uh, much larger deficits according to these economists, but we should. Uh, and it, it's sort of a, a curious um, um, inversion uh, of what we have long said about the debt. Um, you know, deficit hawks have always said that running up the national debt robs future generations. We're now hearing an argument that not to run large deficits and not to run up the debt robs future generations because, um, um, you know, through deficit spending, you can, you can grow the economy, you can make public investments um, that have uh, uh, long-term returns that'll actually leave future generations uh, uh, better off. Um, the truth, I think, is that we are indeed on a dangerous fiscal trajectory. And that this, this notion um, that we can borrow without seeming limit uh, rests, it, it's a risky gamble that rests on, rests on a couple of very questionable propositions. And one is that today's ultra low interest rates will remain ultra low, uh, uh, at least over the next decade. 
Um, two, uh, that foreigners, people elsewhere in the world, will continue to have an insatiable appetite uh, for buying U.S. debt. And three, um, that if the growing debt does become economically threatening, uh, we can always rein in deficits by raising uh, taxes or cutting spending. We shouldn't worry about that now because the future is uncertain. But if we do get to a point where we need to do that, um, the federal government can always impose austerity and, and, and right the ship before it, before it sinks. Um, so that's why the piece is called for. Uh, because a, 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 a lot, a lot of a lot of this uh, thinking uh, is 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 very um, seductive, um, um, but also uh, in in our view, in my view, and and the case we make in the paper, very dangerous. Yeah, it it really seems like it's uh, you know if you take that risk, if you take that gamble, and you're it, turns out that you're wrong, um, there's nothing really you can do about it, except perhaps the austerity or raise taxes all of a sudden, which doesn't seem very politically uh, viable, but it sure is politically seductive in the short term uh, to make, uh, you know, intellectually uh, sounding cases for why it's responsible to be irresponsible. Right. <laughs> well put. Um, so let's let's just uh, go back and kind of start from conventional wisdom on deficit spending and government finances. What's the what's the conventional wisdom on that? Well, it, the conventional wisdom on the debt. Um, um, uh, well, let me let me let me get into this a different way. You know, the Concord Coalition, the Global Aging Institute, uh, deficit hawks in general have always acknowledged that there are legitimate and sometimes compelling reasons for the federal government to borrow. Um, it, it makes sense to borrow to make public investments if the expected return on those investments exceeds, right, the interest rate on the debt issue to finance them. Okay, so that's number one. Number two, um, it makes sense to run deficits and borrow uh, during uh, economic downturns um, in order to increase employment, boost aggregate demand, right, and, and get the economy back on track. That's counter-cyclical deficit spending. Um, and finally, it makes sense to borrow during national emergencies. Uh, the most obvious uh, example is total war, but you know, certainly a global pandemic um, like, like we have been through and aren't quite out of yet uh, uh, qualifies. But at the same time, mainstream economists have, have always cautioned um, that borrowing uh, and running up the debt has potential dangers. Um, and the first two, well, there's sort of an A and a B to number one. Um, and this involves what's called crowding out. Uh, uh, there, there's, there, there, there's only so much savings uh, in the economy and federal, federal borrowing competes with other potential uses for, uh, uh, for savings. Um, so federal borrowing can, uh, and this is well-documented, crowd productive, potentially more productive private investments out of capital markets. 
Um, rising interest costs, this is the B uh, to number one, rising interest costs on the debt can also crowd other spending, including public investment spending, out of government budgets. So, so you, you, you've got crowding out, but, but that isn't the only danger. Um, if the demands of government borrowing on capital markets become too great, uh, you can get uh, a spike uh, in interest rates, um, which may further slow economic uh, 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 growth, further run up interest costs and exacerbate uh, uh, crowding, crowding out. Um, if creditors uh, uh, begin to question the sustainability of the government's long-term fiscal uh, and economic policy, or if they come to suspect that the government may tolerate higher inflation in order to you know, devalue the debt right, and get out from under it that way, they can lose confidence. They may begin to dump government debt. That could lead to a financial crisis, particularly a global financial crisis, since, uh, 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 since, since the dollar and, and the US government debt, treasuries play such a critical role in the international economy. Um, and it could lead to a fiscal crisis too, because government might have to adjust taxes and spending uh, suddenly uh, and draconianly, um, maybe even in the midst of an economic downturn. Um, so you've sort of run out of room uh, 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 to deal um, um, with the downturn through more expansive fiscal policy. Well, we'll get into the possible uh, or, or promised free lunch on the menu when we get right back. We're going to take our first break. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Steve Robinson and I are talking with Richard Jackson, president of the Global Aging Institute and author of a new paper on why the national debt still matters. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Concord Coalition Chief Economist Steve Robinson and I are discussing why the national debt still matters with Richard Jackson, president of the Global Aging Institute and author of a new paper by the Global Aging Institute and the Concord Coalition on just that subject, why the national debt still matters. Um, Steve, I want to bring you into the conversation here because um, we're talking about conventional wisdom on, on government finance. Uh, th there have been some challenges to that recently. And I, uh, as our chief economist, I thought I'd turn this uh, section over to you. Yeah, yeah sure. Thanks, Bob. So, um, Richard, in your paper, you uh, describe what is sometimes referred to as a new school of thought uh, on, on economics. It's, it's referred to as MMT, or Modern Monetary Theory. And they, they seem to have a, a slightly different perspective uh, on the role of, of government uh, fiscal policy and the lack of concern for running up deficits. So uh, what, just, just take us through that just a little bit. What, how do they differ from the conventional view? Yeah, well, um... A, a, a lot of people smarter than me have tried to make sense of MMT and describe it in a fashion that doesn't seem convoluted 
and uh, they've all failed. Um, but I will. Uh, I'll <laughs> give it I'll a give shot. It, give it my best. Uh, I'll give it my best shot. I mean, f- fundamentally, um, um, MMT has its intellectual roots in a in in, in a heterodox uh, a theory of of money. Um, the conventional theory of money is that it arose uh, to facilitate economic exchanges in the private economy. So you didn't have to trade a cow for a, a bushel of wheat or, 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 or whatever. Um, and MMT, uh, in the MMT framework, um, um, money is purely a creation of the state. Um, um, It's not just that the state has a monopoly over it, as it does in most countries today, but that it it is purely a creation of the state and that it exists to serve the state's ends. Um, And and this unconventional theory of money uh, 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 suggests an unconventional view of um, government finances. Mainstream economics, not to mention common sense, says that governments impose levy taxes in order to raise money to spend, right? Well, MMC says no. Now, the taxes may have some important purposes. They, they, may, uh, uh, they, they, they exist most fundamentally to encourage demand for, co- for government currency. They may um, um, be useful to redistribute income. Um, um, they, they can be a, a tool to help fight inflation, but government doesn't need to tax in order to spend. All it needs to do in order to spend is to print money. Um, and it can print as much money as it wants uh, to spend as much as it wants and run up the debt as much as it wants. Um, so long as there is any slack at all in the economy, um, so long as the economy is short of full employment, which MMT uh, defines as zero uh, uh, un- unemployment. Um, and, and not only can the government, the government should, its goal should be to spend as much as necessary in order to ensure full employment, um, um, even through a federal jobs guarantee. And that uh, if somehow um, um, this is all miscalculated, that the government overshoots, that inflation, the economy overheats and inflation takes off. It can always raise taxes or cut spending to take money out of the, of the economy. Now, mainstream economists uh, uh, across the board um, dismiss uh, uh, MMT. There was a poll um, conducted by the University of Chicago Booth School of Business, uh, in which not, not one of 38 prominent economists polled agreed with the proposition that, you know, I, 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 I forgot to make a point, all of this is only true if governments um, have a fiat currency, right? So not tied to gold, and if they borrow in their own currency, right? So the, the which is true, both of those things are true of the United States, but not one agreed with the proposition um, um, that a government that issues debt in its own currency uh, uh, can, 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 bar- can, can borrow risklessly without, without limit. But yet the curious thing um, is that many of these same 
mainstream economists turn around and say that at this juncture, um, um, in this economic environment, the government can safely borrow much more uh, than uh, uh, was once thought prudent by, by, most, by most economists. And I, I, I can go on to talk a bit about the mainstream view if you want, or, or, or maybe you want to jump in with the, a question or two about MMT, um, uh, however, you want to, however you want to do this, Bob and Steve. Now, I think that the issue that you raise is the apparent alignment between MMT and the more conventional view about borrowing at this moment in time is premised on the very, very low interest rates that we're dealing with. And if interest rates were to change, then perhaps the conventional view would change as well. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the conventional uh, mainstream economists, um, 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 like, like Larry Summers or Jason Furman uh, uh, or Paul Krugman, um, who, who, who make this argument for a more expansive fiscal policy at, at, at this point in time. I mean, first they point out that, look, the whole notion of crowding out seems, seems a bit remote at this point. The world is awash in excess savings, investment demand is slack. I mean, you've got to be kidding me, they say. You're worried about crowding out. Um, furthermore, we have all of these pressing needs for public investment. Um, interest rates, as you said, Steve, are ultra low. Um, the government can safely borrow much more uh, uh, than was once thought to be uh, uh, prudent. Um, and it would be foolish not to, because they argue, uh, this extra government spending would boost economic growth more than it would, I mean, it would increase economic growth more than it would increase in interest, interest costs. Um, so that's the, uh, uh, that's, that's the mainstream argument. And curiously, as you, as you suggested, uh, <laughs> you, you ask yourself, well, what's really the difference? Theoretically, there are fundamental differences between the mainstream and, and, and MMT. Um, but these are distinctions in, in practical terms without a, without a difference. I mean, MMT says that government borrowing can't cause a crisis and the mainstream economists say that it, that it, that it won't, um, <laughs> that it won't cause a crisis. Um, um, uh, it's, a dis it's a distinction, it's a distinction without a, I think one both, of the both assume, uh, yeah I mean both, both assume for, furthermore that 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 if things do uh, uh, begin to spin out of control that the government can always easily adjust policy and pull back right um, um, as as if cutting you know as if raising taxes were as easy or as cutting them and as, as if cutting you know cutting benefit programs was as easy as creating new ones. I think the two, two big points in the paper are that the near-term future is uncertain too um, and could deteriorate the near-term outlook and could deteriorate very rapidly, number one. And number two, it isn't so easy to change course. Yeah. You know, if you know anything about the political economy uh, uh, of, of federal taxing spending um, and yeah, fiscal well, policy. 
let's talk a little bit about some of those underlying assumptions in the official baseline. And I want to split this up into two things. One is some policy assumptions, which uh, we can talk about a little bit. And then uh, after the, uh, the break, what we'll do is come back and talk about a, uh, a model that you and Steve ran in this paper, which makes an assumption about interest rates and the ultra low interest rates over the short term and how that can have a really big impact uh, yeah. over the long term if, if interest rates turn out to be higher than, than projected. Well, Steve, Steve built and ran the model. I just had the privilege of uh, talking about the results. <laughs> well, 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 we can, we can do that. Um, let's just first, there, there are a number of things aside from that that are questionable about the assumptions in, in the baseline. That's not to fault CBO. It's just uh, sometimes baselines are constructed on faulty premises that are, well, that are imposed upon CBO. Yeah, CBO has its hands tied, right? It, it, it has to construct its baseline according to the letter of current law. Um, um, so that means that uh, sunsets on taxes, their, 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 their tax cuts that are due to expire um, well under the CBO, even though <laughs> um, um, co Congress uh, 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 historically has um, almost always uh, uh, postponed the sunsets uh, uh, and renewed the cuts. Um, uh, any, any, any tax cut that's due to uh, 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 expire or spending hike that's due to expire uh, uh, is built into the baseline. Um, in, in, entitlements run uh, more or less on autopilot, but there still is uh, at least some part of the budget growing smaller all the time that's appropriated year to year, right? So it's, it's discretionary spending is appropriated year to year. So how do, how do you make an assumption in, in, in a baseline projection about what's going to happen to discretionary spending in the future when there's nothing, nothing in current law that says anything about where, where, where it's gonna, where it's gonna be. Well, it, in fact, they assume in that uh, absence that it's just gonna grow with inflation, but that, that yeah. leaves you with a, an unrealistic projection in a policy sense, because if you run that out about 10 years, discretionary spending is lower as a percentage of the economy than yeah, it's well, I mean, a lot of discretionary spending involves paying for labor costs. Labor costs grow, you know, it, 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 it maybe not year to year, but over the long term in line with economic growth, not with inflation. Um, you know, if you have an inf a growth, growth, discretionary spending growing with inflation, that's probably not enough to maintain uh, current levels of services, much less uh, to fund new priorities. Then looking out longer term, uh, uh, the CBO assumes um, uh, a fairly marked uh, market slowdown in per capita healthcare cost growth. Um, um, you know, getting back to the aging of the population, uh, it doesn't fully factor in recent declines in birth rates. But in the paper, we decided so. So even you know, just that will push up the debt and critically push up interest costs as a share of the budget and as a share of revenues. But in the paper, we decided, well, let's just leave all of that aside and focus on CBO's interest rate assumptions because interest rates um, potentially 
uh, uh, can have a bigger impact um, on, on the debt and debt service costs than, than any of the other assumptions, certainly near term than any of the other assumptions. Okay, and on that cliffhanger, that tease, <laughs> uh, we'll keep you coming back after the break. You're listening to uh, Facing the Future. I'm Bob Bixby. Steve Robinson and I are uh, talking with Richard Jackson, president of the Global Aging Institute and author of a new paper on why the national debt still matters. And we'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Concord Coalition Chief Economist Steve Robinson and I are discussing why the national debt still matters with Richard Jackson, president of the Global Aging Institute and author of a paper by that title, Why the National Debt Still Matters. Um, we were talking a little bit about interest rate assumptions and how important they are and uh, what, uh, what might happen if you change some of those assumptions. So Steve, you uh, constructed a model for purposes of this paper that uh, looks at a, a, a little bit different scenario for interest rates. Do you want to kind of describe that? And then we'll get back to uh, how that fits into the paper. Um, yeah, sure, Bob. So as most people know, the federal debt is actually comprised of, of different components. They're what are called bills, notes, and bonds. And the distinction here is, is the maturity. In other words, when the government borrows money, it can borrow short term, it can borrow as much as you know, day to day, you know, cash management type bills. It can borrow on a three month basis, six month basis, annual basis, or any, any, any maturity beyond that. Typically it's uh, two, three, five, seven, 10 year, 20 year and 30 year. And so, <clears throat> When the government borrows at different interest rates at different maturities, then when you think about the debt, you have to realize that historically, each maturity has had a different interest rate. Typically, the short-term notes and bills pay a lower interest rate, and the longer-term bonds, like the 30-year bond, pays a higher interest rate. Um, and so essentially you have to do a couple of things when you wanna think about the federal debt. You've got the outstanding debt, the 20 trillion plus debt that exists today. That's comprised of various mixes of notes and bonds that will roll over over time. So when a 20 year bond that was issued 20 years ago matures, the government will issue new debt to roll that over to pay it off. And so when you think about interest rates, you have a couple of things going on. You have all the outstanding debt that has different interest rates that debt all matures and gets rolled over. And then you have the new debt that both finances new spending, new deficits, and also refinances the debt that rolls over. So in order to sort of model the effect of debt and changes in interest rates, you have to both follow the existing debt as it rolls over so that you pay off the old debt at whatever interest rate that was, issue new debt at the new interest rate. And so you have essentially those two elements that have to be accounted for. And so essentially I tried to develop a, a, you know, a simple model that allows you to roll off the outstanding debt and issue new debt both to, to finance the rollover and to finance new deficits. And the interesting thing right now, of course, is that interest rates are ultra low. I mean, even 10-year treasuries are down at about one and a quarter percent, three months are below a percent. So <clears throat> you have very, very low interest rates. 
And of course, that makes deficit financing very attractive. When interest rates are low, it, it doesn't cost much to borrow money. And historically, at least in the last you know, several decades, the federal government has tended to finance a lot of its debt very, very short term. I've looked at a couple of different data sources and it's it, roughly 40 to 50% of the debt that's outstanding today uh, was financed at less than a year. So that means that every year or every two years, we're rolling over more than half of all the outstanding debt. So if you've got $20 trillion and you're paying 1% interest and you roll that all over at 1% interest, okay, no big deal. But if interest rates start going up, as you roll over that debt, you have to start paying a higher interest rate. And so essentially the question we wanted to ask was, well, what happens if interest rates start to go up and you have to roll this debt over and start paying, <clears throat> paying a higher interest rate on the debt? And essentially the model allows you to do that. And uh, connecting those dots, what did we find? <laughs> well, we find that if interest rates rise just a few percentage points, from 1% up to what, what we assumed is that over the next three years, interest rates would go from you know, less than one and a half to two and a half to three and a half and four and a half. So within, within three years, interest rates would be four and a half percent. You figure inflation is 2% historically, that's the Federal Reserve's inflation target. Interest rates are real interest rates are two to 3% historically. Um, so, you know, four and a half percent is well within the range of what we've seen historically, even when inflation is, is, is moderate. Those, so aren't, those aren't wild 70s uh, inflation uh, assumptions. Right, no, interest rates were up above 10, 15% back in, back in the late 70s, early 80s. So, Steve, so Steve as recently as uh, 2019, wasn't the CBO projecting uh, 3.7? Right. Well, right, yeah. That, that's for the 10-year T-bill. Yeah, that's sort of the interesting thing that's going on now is after the financial crisis in 2008, 2009, the Federal Reserve stepped in, they pushed interest rates real low, the economy recovered and interest rates rebounded. And, you know, we're in a similar situation now, following the, the beginning of the pandemic back last February, the Fed stepped in again, pushed interest rates very, very low, and have held them there. And as the economy recovers, the assumption is that rates will go back up. But interestingly, uh, CBO continues to assume that interest rates are going to remain well below, you know, two percent, three percent for the next several years. Um, and we said, well, but you know, what happens if that doesn't happen? What if interest rates do respond more quickly? I mean, historically, interest rates have swung within a year or two by sometimes more than two or three percentage points. So it's not, you know, in my view. Um, interest rates tend to be more volatile, whereas what CBO is predicting is a very slow, steady, gradual rise in interest rates over the next three decades. Which they really have to do as a prudent assumption. The question is, you know, what could happen in the, uh, in the event that things are, you know, work out a little bit differently? Well, right. So, so essentially what we did is we said, okay, let's assume interest rates are in the, in the end, 30 years from now, interest rates are gonna be no higher than CBO assumes, but we just assume that it's going to get to that rate sooner rather than later. And as a result, in the next 10 years, you know, interest costs on, on, the, on the federal debt will go from you know, one or 2% of GDP to three or 4% of GDP. 
So we're literally and, gonna, gonna double the interest cost on the federal debt over the next 10 years relative to the low interest rate scenario. And, and Richard, I, want, yeah. I just wanted to button down one point here is that one of the interesting things that I saw in the paper is that that ultra low interest rate assumption does seem inconsistent with the economic projections of uh, robust growth and, and uh, uh, you know, high employment. That, I mean, that's my intuition, but I mean, you know, we're in a very, very unusual period. I mean, monetary policy for the last two decades have been uh, highly unusual. Yeah. And so it's sort of hard to know, you know, when we'll get back to normal, whatever normal is. Um, and so, you know, no one can accurately predict what, you know, we're not pretending we know what interest rates are going to do. Right. Your yeah. CBO will tell you they're not predicting what interest rates are going to do. Uh, they're just simply saying, here's an illustrative path based on, you know, some yeah. reasonable set of assumptions. But, you know, we're saying that the risk is on the upside, uh, that interest rates could be higher sooner than what CBO is predicting. And what would it look like if that were the case? Yeah. And Steve, in this scenario you outlined, just to translate your GDP shares on interest costs into budget shares, right? This is the difference at the end of the 10-year budget window in 2031, um, between under the CBO baseline, interest costs consuming 14% of federal revenues and interest costs consuming 29% of federal revenues. All of a sudden, new borrowing <laughs> doesn't seem quite so costless anymore. And, and, and certainly the budgetary crowding out issue looms larger. Um, also, Steve, in, in addition to rolling over all the new debt at these higher rates, of course, uh, uh, the government is projected to borrow an average of more than a trillion every year over the next decade. So that has to be financed at the higher rates too, right? Right. Oh, yeah, that, that's included. I, I didn't focus on that in my, my yeah. previous discussion. But yes, that's assumed that we will continue to run roughly trillion dollar deficits over the next decade. So. Yeah. And, and in your model, we're assuming exactly the projected deficits that the CBO is assuming. The only thing that changes is, is the ramp up on the, on the interest rate, right? Yes, correct. And Richard, there's, um, there are some inf international implications to all this, isn't there? I mean, the, the United States, the dollar is the reserve currency. If we're, you know, I guess we're assuming that that's always going to be the case. So there, are, talk a little bit about how all this fits into the, uh, the global perspective. Well, I mean, the United States has long enjoyed what's sometimes been called an exorbitant privilege, right? I mean, we're borrowing in our own currency and our currency is the global reserve currency. Um, and, and, and so it's not just today's ultra low interest rates that make it easier for the federal government to borrow than uh, uh, most other, than many other governments. Um, it, it, it's also uh, the status of the dollar as global reserve currency. Um, and, and, and you know, it has been for decades and decades, essentially, uh, over the entire course of the post-war period. But the economic, the global economic and geopolitical landscape is, is changing very rapidly. And uh, do we really want to bet our, our you know, it, all, it, it boils down to, in the end, who's going to buy, right, 
all, all of this, you know, a trillion dollars every year of new debt, plus all of the old debt being being rolled over, a big chunk of that is owned, well, it, 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 a substantial share around a quarter, I think, is, is owned by the Federal Reserve. It'll be happy to keep buying it so long as inflation remains quiescent, okay? Um, another big chunk of it, around 40%, I think around two-fifths, um, is owned by foreigners. Um, and they'll be happy to keep buying it so long as, uh, 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 so long as they continue to trust in the sustainability of US economic and fiscal policy. Um, um, and, and so long as returns here remain attractive relative to returns, returns elsewhere. Um, and and, and, and part, part of what under, underpins this seeming risklessness, right, the ultra safety, if you will, of U.S. debt, is this, the status of the dollar as global reserve currency. But, you know, we, we have a rise in China, we have a changing global economic and geopolitical landscape, and do we really want to bet our kids' future on um, the international financial system working exactly as it does today in 2031? or 2051. Yeah, there's a fiscal cliff looming somewhere out there and uh, we don't know where it is. It's out there in the fog somewhere. Yes. And, and we don't, it's a fantasy to think we can just, we can tiptoe all the way up to the brink. Well, we're more than tiptoeing. Now we can speed all the way up to the brink and then slam on the brakes at the last moment and impose draconian fiscal austerity. Well, uh, on that happy note, which I fully uh, agree with, um, that's all we're going to have time for this week. Richard, uh, I want to thank you very much for joining us on Facing the Future. And uh, uh, everybody can read the paper uh, by looking it up on the Concord Coalition website or the Global Aging Institute website, which is GAI.org. Yeah. Uh, no, it's uh, globalaginginstitute.org globalaginginstitute.org. It's a mouthful. Yes, yes. And Steve, thanks uh, for joining me today. Thanks for tuning in. I'll be back next week with another edition of Facing the Future. 